Hey, common scientists, we are coming to you this week with a biopic on Isaac Asimov, and you'll hear more about him over the next hour or so as we dive into a bit about his life, his history, and what what makes him a common scientist, why we brought him in this week. Uh, but as always, please remember, we are common scientists, keyword common. We are not experts. The goal is to bring a question or a person or a life to the table, right? And ask questions about it, learn more, dive in, and hopefully glean something that will add value to our lives and maybe your lives too. So this week we've got myself, Lauren, Aiden, and Dre, and we are coming to you on Isaac. So I'll kick it off to start to Dre for just a little bit about Mr. Asimov and what made him a fantastic figure in history. Yeah, no doubt. So Isaac Asimov was born in Russia to Jewish parents, and he doesn't really know exactly when he was born. Actually, I, I actually didn't write it down. All I wrote down was he doesn't know why when he was born. <laughs> well, about, well, about what year does like Wikipedia or whatever say he was born? Uh, I think it was 1919 or 1920. Okay, gotcha. Born. So because about. of the times and I guess like the area in Russia he uh, grew up in or was born in, he doesn't really know exactly. He ended up choosing uh, January 2nd as his birthday, 1920, I believe, if Aiden's correct. They end up emigrating to America um, with his sister, his parents and his sister, at a pretty young age. And he showed a lot of signs of being precocious. He was fluent in Yiddish, his parents' language, by age five, as well as English, which they had just moved to. And he actually learned to read English, read and speak English, by reading um, street signs. So not the typical way, not the common way to learn, but hey, this is... I guess he's a more uncommon common scientist. And he but soon... But what was available to him in an environment, right? Like... Yeah. Well, yeah. Definitely it's, very it's, impressive. Yeah, quite, quite resourceful. I'm just going to say I've heard of instances of people learning English from watching Saturday Night Live as well. Or Oh, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dang. So. Here I am just <laughs> pouring through tomes of Japanese literature. <laughs> Or not even literature, grammar books. I, all I need to do is... You, you need know, to watch a reality TV show. That's all show. you do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. All right. He then, after um, becoming fluent, he took it upon himself to teach his sister how to speak the language. Um, his family also, when they got to America, they ended up owning a store where there was a lot of candy and there was a lot of Pulp Fiction magazines and comics. And that is where he fell in love with sci-fi. As a kid, he actually dreamt of owning a kiosk in a New York subway. So I don't remember if we said it, but Isaac Asimov went on to be like a crazy successful, one of the greatest sci-fi writers of all time. But he had much humbler beginnings. All he wanted to do was own a kiosk in the subway <laughs> as a kid. So amazing. He started writing at age 11. As I said, he's precocious. He ended up graduating high school at age 15 and graduating with a bachelor's in chemistry from Columbia at age 19 in 1939. Wow. Originally, Asimov wanted to study zoology until he discovered he needed to dissect an alley cat. Then he was like, you know what? I'd rather break down some molecules over in chemistry. Publications. In 1938, he submitted Cosmic Corkscrew, but it was rejected, but he was encouraged by um, the publisher. So he kept on writing. March 1939, he um, marooned Avesta, his first big publication, was published. 
And the premise for this story is what would happen if, and he was some, um, like his mentor prompted him, they asked him this question. What would happen if the residents of a planet only saw the stars once every thousand years? This inspired his, or sorry, this isn't um, for Moon by Vesta. This is what inspired his book, Nightfall, which gave me a lot of, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like Mary Shelley and Frankenstein, but it gave me a lot of those vibes. So her, Percy, Lord Byron, and maybe some others, they were out hanging out in their Victoria homes telling ghost stories. And uh, Lord Byron was like, you know what? Who can write the best ghost story? And that is how like a 16 or 17, something like that year old, um, Mary Shelley wrote and created Frankenstein. Nightfall ended up winning the best sci or is now considered the best sci-fi story of pre-1965 sci-fi writing. He wrote that at age 21. It's about a planet called Lagash that has perpetual sun. I, can't, I think they have like six suns or something like that. And they were having a, an eclipse for the first time in a thousand years. And he's exploring what they will do. And two major groups pop up, the scientists and the cultists. And Asimov, being the common scientist that he was, had a strong lean towards <laughs> the scientists being the heroes of that story. He was never religious. Um, he said... He's never once felt drawn to religion. I experienced no spiritual void. So he was completely content with not having any greater power in his life, no afterlife, anything like that. He considered himself a humanist, much like our common scientist Aiden over here, and he also considered himself a rationalist. He was drafted and served as a chemist in um, World War II in 1942. In the military, he did not stop writing at all. This guy was crazy prolific. He ended up writing hundreds of books in his life, and the military did not slow him down. He ended up pu publishing something called, or a story called The Runarounds, which established robots as characters in literature. Wild. Yes. <laughs> and even, yeah. even though there were some ideas, um, of some maybe references to sort of automatons, like non-sentient but like self-moving um, creatures such as Frankenstein for yeah. one but then there's also some people consider Hephaestus the Greek god of like metalwork or something like that some sort of smith um the Greek god he had like golden servants or something like that so some people consider that like robotics or automatons but um, this was definitely a pivotal, pivotal, pivotal point in literature. And Asimov was the first to use the word robotics. And he ended up establishing the three laws of robotics, which if you've seen the movie, iRobot, based on his story, iRobot, you, you might know these. Rule number one, a robot cannot harm a human or allow harm to a human. Rule number two, a robot must obey order, an order from human except when it it conflicts with law number one. And law number three, a robot must protect its own existence unless it conflicts with the first two laws. So those are the first three laws of robotics. And- Whoa, whoa, can you say that as, those again? I was listening and they're complex, right? Because each one is sort of dependent upon the next. So I just wanna hear them again. Correct, rule number one of robotics. A robot cannot harm a human, nor can it allow harm to come to a human. Okay. Rule no number two, robot, a robot must obey the orders of a human unless it conflicts with rule number one. So unless, unless it would cause harm to a human. Okay. Rule number three, a robot must protect its own existence unless it conflicts with the first two rules. 
Cool. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. Um, and that actually has shaped a lot of my thinking of when I personally write. I just wrote a, um, a blog post recently about that included a potentially robotic character. And that informed me, that informed a lot of my thinking of how to write one. Even though I wasn't thinking, oh, Asimov has really inspired me. It just kind of is an idea that is pervaded. Like, yes, like these are things that we think about. And these are things that when you talk about the future of AI and automatons, people are really bringing into question, how do we make it so that they cannot harm people, that they cannot turn at us and destroy all of humanity, right? So big pioneer in that. And also since Lauren did call me out on the last podcast about where I'm getting these, my source is actually a YouTube channel called Bi Biographics. Um, that is mostly where I got all this information. So shout out to them, go to their YouTube channel. They are amazing. All right, moving on past that. So as about, uh, in many of his stories, Asimov explores extremes of robots obeying these laws. Mm. So that's why the laws are really important. He kind of twists them a little bit and brings them to the extreme, which again is a lot of the questions that we ask about the future of AI today is doing the same thing. He had a terrible fear of flying that led him to travel by boats over to Europe. In 1951, he started his um, kind of maybe his magnum opus, the Foundation series, uh, which is about the decline of a galactic empire after a 12,000 year rule. Harry Selden, the main character, gathers the best minds to one planet called the Foundation, and it explores themes such as the preservation of knowledge and the manipulation of the masses. Wild. I think I've said that like several times, but yeah. he's, he's quite the character, right? Yeah, you've said that a Prolific, times. prolific yeah. writer. Thanks for shitting on my word choice. <laughs> uh, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just saying, yeah, I'm agreeing with you. It is, it is nuts. 100%. Man, the three rules though, those were great. No harm to humans, follow our rules unless it harms humans, and like protect your own self unless it harms humans. 100%. Yes, which yeah. is in the, I imagine the book. I haven't read the book yet. I started it, didn't finish it. Um, in the book, iRobot, I imagine happens because it happens in the movie. There's a character that, a robotic character, who I think gets in trouble because it's trying to protect itself, but then it allowed, it did protect itself, but it allowed harm to come to a human. So it was like a passive harm and people didn't like that. <laughs> no. so, oh man very interesting so that i guess would be taking the laws to the extreme mm -hmm. perhaps or maybe and he was married wasn't person. he asimov mm -hmm. yes uh was he married twice yeah okay I married twice so. so maybe you speak on it then i know he was married once i'm i'm pretty positive i don't know if one of you guys want to pull up wiki according to wiki so maybe you take it with a grain of salt but i'm fairly sure he was married once and then divorced and then remarried within a very short period of time. Oh, yes, like you, you are right. Something. Yes. So his first marriage was on the rocks for a really long time. He was a deadbeat dad, kind of a deadbeat husband because he was just so engaged addicted, engaged, obsessed with his writing. And we've yeah. seen this level of genius many times before. His is definitely an extreme. He was a pretty extreme guy of his marriage. He, he was this video biographics. It did say that he's at first he was kind of blaming certain things on his wife. Like, I don't know if she had an addiction or something like that. Like he was kind of putting blame on her, but eventually he was quoted as saying annoyances, multiple and or multiple annoyances and or multiply. Sorry, annoyances multiply and frictions come slowly to seem irreconcilable. So he's just kind of speaking to the idea of 
sometimes the little things that happen in a relationship that don't really matter that much at the beginning, years and years and years, those things aren't so cute anymore, and they just kind of deteriorated. While he was married... Super encouraging to hear. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I mean, he's just being practical, I guess. Just being blunt. <laughs> and yes, to, to your point, so they were kind of fading away for a while, and then he was starting... He had a... What was she? I can't a remember. Psychologist? Psychologist, mm-hmm. yes. So, I think a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Psychiatrist, you're right. So he met a psychiatrist named Janet Jackson? <laughs> that's, that's what it I remember. It was something like that. I think it was Janet Jackson. <laughs> But something like that. As you look it up. But he met her during while he was still married, and they formed a friendship, a bond, and they worked together and wrote together stuff like that, and bounced ideas off each other. Um, they end up moving in really close to each other, and then by the time his vo- his divorce was finally, um, what's the word I'm looking for? She was, Finalized. They married within like weeks of each other. Him. And she was born Janet. Jepson. Oh, Jepson. Okay, not Jepson. <laughs> Janet Jepson. My bad. My bad. She did John. dig his last name and became Janet Asimov. But she was also, uh, so she also had usually wrote as J. O. Jepson, and as an American sci- science fiction writer herself. So in addition to her psychiatry practice, she was yes. also a sci-fi writer. Yes, yeah, awesome power couple. And to going back to like the extremes of kind of one of the reasons why. He had an estranged Two son. Two weeks after his divorce from Gertrude. Yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I just wanted to say her name, Gertrude. Yes, Gertrude. And two weeks she is a human was being. the amount. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to mention now, just because I'm on Janet Asimov's Wikipedia page, there's an awesome photo of the two of them. And Isaac, his his style, I don't know if you could call it a style, it's just funny. He's, it's, he's older in this photo. Um, but he was just like five foot nine, I believe, and he had had just these fat white mutton chops and like big old glasses. So he's just rocking the mad scientist vibe. Yeah, uh, so for just, sure. Yeah, look up a picture when you have a chance. If you're not driving, of course. But <clears throat> definitely super cool dude. We all agree. But he did have some not so cool things about him. One thing, as we talked about, it was being kind of a deadbeat family man. And one of the reasons why he was that is because, like we said, he was addicted to his work. Every day he woke up at 6 a.m. and he wrote without fail from 7.30 a.m. to 10 p.m. And he never, interesting fact, I, I cannot relate to this, but he never wrote more than two drafts of a piece because he felt like if he was going to write more than two drafts, then that means he was really in love with this and he would never be able to let it go. So it was just, just kind of his way to make a hard rule to move on and let things be as they are, which is, I struggle with that in my own writing. Wow. If he was ever so, and it sounded like he was just like a writer, true and true, through and through, and he didn't really have writer's block, but sometimes he did get bored with the piece, and if he ever found himself disinterested at all or uninterested at all, he would just move on to another piece. He would have multiple at a time that he was writing, and he would just go on to the next one. He would not beat his head and try to just force something to come out. And he had written, I think we said this number before, but I want to highlight, like 500 pieces right so i think you so he had written or edited around 500 like books yeah which is so i think this (laughs) idea of like only editing twice just move on get out to the world uh seems to complement how he could have maintained such productivity it was one thing that i had questioned and when aid and i had chatted about it a bit before the uh cast were like man 500 pieces edited or put out that's it's a 
They yeah, never... I think in addition to working from six until ten, he also failed that he never would take a holiday, or I mean, he was just so religious about his work, and he he in a memoir released uh, posthumously. I, I don't know what posthumously. Yeah, yeah, that word. Like after he had died, uh, he had claimed that it was his his experience in the candy store that that schedule uh that hard-working schedule of working as an immigrant in a in a candy store growing up yeah uh, led him to have this uh what most people view as <laughs> quite an extreme work schedule but i think too lauren yeah just pointing out that the hard and fast rule of two drafts is yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, for sure. And I don't think that, I don't, obviously that's not going to work for everybody. Probably not going to work for most people. I don't know. But I think there is definitely a lesson in there about moving on, about being prolific, about, because um, you know, even, you know, when people are like drafting ideas for things, mm-hmm. people always try to like sit there and keep it in the head for the perfect idea. But it's like, no, you just throw them out there until one sticks. You have no idea. It's mostly, it's way more quantity than quality in that aspect where it's like, no, you have to just keep shooting. Yeah. And that's obviously he's a genius, but that's kind of still what he was doing. Right. But just at a completely different frequency than almost anybody ever. <laughs> but you know, so that's, that's pretty cool. Awesome yeah. to, to his like freakish work ethic. There's an author right now, the author of a manga called one piece, which is one of, I might be the most successful manga of all time. And it's also one of the most successful anime of all time. So that writer, his name is Oda, and Ichiro Oda, and he has a very, very similar schedule. I think, I'm not, I'm not even going to try to say what he's got, I don't have it off the top of my head, but it's something insane, like 20-hour work days. He's only taken like one month off in the last, like, he's been writing this thing for like 25 years, 20-something years since the 90s, and only taking like one month off, something ridiculous. So his, he's addicted to cigarettes because he needs to stimulate to work all day, and he gets like, in separate, he does have like, Sometimes he'll have like spells where he gets really sick and then he'll be in the hospital. And, but he doesn't let anybody like do any of his writing or initial drawings or anything like that because it's his magnum opus, right? It's his baby. And he's just like, this is my thing I want to give. And also he's like the, my readers and my watchers and listeners and all that, they pay me, they made me very wealthy so that I can give them this work. Like I don't want someone else like shading in the drawings or I don't want to use like old he, he does a lot of flashbacks, too. And in, in the manga, he redraws them because he's like, they're not paying me to use something that I drew 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. So crazy dedication to his fans, crazy dedication to his art and craft. Um, so yeah. definitely very reminiscent of Asimov. Yeah, I want to say, too, to anybody, anybody aspiring to be a creative writer, there's a, another book called uh, Deep Work by Cal Newport. And he's got a quote in there where he says, a creative genius has the mind of an artist but works like an accountant. Mm. And that, and that uh, quite captures a lot of, a lot of this. Uh, but some of his examples, though, uh, they seemingly had much more balance in their lives. So I'd also like to highlight that, too. Uh, I think it was... Uh, might have been Carl Jung or Sigmund Freud. Um, but they would wake up, I think it was, it was one of those two and they would wake up and have breakfast, uh, at like, it it was very routinized, but they would have breakfast, um, between like eight and 9am 
have a big breakfast and then just write from nine to noon and then would recreate in the afternoons and just like give their mind time to creatively mull over things and and also like go on walks with other people uh so it was just kind of interesting like this having this dedicated chunk in this routine of going deep is what cal newport's kind of or, or performing deep work is his term for it um and doing that uh in these bursts over time led to them creating these works but yeah it, it is i mean bananas then to hear the examples of like asimov and how not seed take it yeah 100 percent. thank you for that plug I, I had not or at least i don't recall hearing about that book i'm gonna have to check that out yeah sounds really really good who did you say jung and who uh, so I think it was Jung or Freud um, that I, he goes into quite detail depth on. detail on, um, and I can't quite remember which okay. one. Uh, yeah, that, like he talks about how, again, one of them uh, built this uh, home away from the city, and he brings up how, uh, like, it was in fact built. To, for work like it wasn't a retreat it was for him to go and oh it was Carl Jung because he was talking about how Carl Jung was uh, trying to needed this uh, deep work space and this deep work time to grapple with the ideas of Sigmund Freud because Sigmund Freud was Carl Jung's like predecessor mentor, yeah. um, and mentor and so yeah it was Carl Jung but he, he talked about all these examples of these different geniuses and and how they would go to great lengths to find space space and and intentional time intentional time yeah yeah carl young built a stone tower where it was just his office or study no one was allowed in i mean these intense that was intense ability Uh, to either focus for 20 hours as you were talking about with some of these crazy crazy dedicated writers and or but even just the ability today i think to unplug for even an hour and write in in a focused con- concerted effort is is pretty pretty yeah hard it's a so he, another example he brings up is michael pollan who's a popular like food and science writer and he built a little shed in in the back of his home uh without any internet access so that's another theme is that the internet is a distracting place and avoiding that if you're trying to produce anything of of meaningful value but guys i think we should just go to a shed for a week and we should write (laughs) that sounds sweet to me i mean we would definitely come up with something something very special mary shelley percy shelley (laughs) lord byron i'm pointing (laughs) myself i'm lord byron Wonderful. It works. I'm yeah. saying, serious. No, 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 we would definitely get somewhere for sure. <laughs> that, is, yeah. that is a fact. Um, something kind of adorable. I always think it's adorable. It's one of my favorite qualities, or it's one of my favorite things that Emily does for me is um, specifically on Blaisdell Ave. There's a bunch of like old timey mansions and stuff like that, and some of them have like these little tower type of like in, in Minneapolis. In for, Minneapolis, yeah. 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 Some of them have like these little kind of towers, and every time we see something like that, I'm gonna be like, "That's what I'm gonna get you, babe. I'm gonna get you a writing tower." And I'm <laughs> like, "Yeah." So just speaking exactly to what you guys are talking about, I was like, "Yes, I need a tower that's high <laughs> up, that's kind of like you know semicircular, and no one else is allowed in there but me. Everybody knows if I'm in that room, you cannot bother me. Yeah. Um, all that good stuff. Maybe no phone allowed. Some stuff like that. Yeah. Very cool. All right. 
Isaac Asimov, the deadbeat genius. Not <laughs> uh, So after that's not even possible. Deadbeat <laughs> genius. <laughs> um, so, um, so after as his first marriage was kind of crumbling. While so he was described by a friend as having a of being a model of moral rectitude, but then it was said as the moral as the marriage decayed. He kind of got a little bit more lascivious and lecherous on the way. So he was known at these literary conventions and other gatherings um, to deal out a good amount of unwanted sexual advances. He was obsessed with pinching butts. And in, so much so that in 1962, he was prompted to give a speech on the positive power of posterior pinching. And it was well known among his circle that he was slapped quite a bit in his lifetime. Well, at least he was slapped quite a bit. I did not see that on the Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't read far enough down. <laughs> Clearly not. I was, I was upholding him as this scientific genius who just didn't have a good marriage because he was busy changing the world. And now I hate How's him. How does it change your perspective? Did you hear me just say I hate him? You hate him now? Yeah. Yeah, when you were before the podcast, when Lauren was singing his praises, I was like, there's a fact she does not know, definitely. I was like, there's something she definitely does not know. <laughs> you waited till the cast to drop yeah, it. Yeah, what? You just dropped that bomb on me? Where I was like, well, I, I didn't you know to. what? That's okay. Yeah, you, can't, you can't ruin that. I started to feel bad about myself. I'm like, man, I don't want to work 20 hours a day. Like, so the other day... For those of you Common Science listeners, all of us do quite a bit of writing. We write for our blog, Common Science. You can find it on our commonscientist.com. Uh, we also all write personally for various things inside and outside of academia. And um, just a couple of weeks ago, I got excited about an idea, an idea and I wrote 10,000 words in one day. And um, for those of you who don't know, and I didn't even know, actually Aiden was the one who explained to me like what that meant or like how profound that maybe is. And so maybe like it's like 10,000 words is a book, right? Something like that. Uh, 100,000 yeah, words 100, would be 000. like a 200 page like draft. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right, so to crank out ten thousand words in a day is a lot is a lot of words, and I just yeah. I just didn't know I didn't I just didn't realize. Yeah, they don't. And yeah, I haven't written a book yet. Obviously, I got a lot of work to do to refine and get better at my craft, but I really enjoyed it. Needless to say, then we talk about these people like Isaac Asimov and these crazy prolific writers who just have these high high amounts of output. It is easy to feel bad about yourself as a creator when you're thinking about these like awesome, awesome guys. But now yeah. that I know that he pinched butts, I can dismiss his creative work and be okay with yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think there's lessons to be learned from him. Um, but yeah, you still don't have to like somebody if you don't. If yeah, but yeah, I agree. I mean, what he what he what he was a. Pro- a proponent of was despicable um and i also don't appreciate that uh but his so one thing that one thing that i do think is uh kind of fascinating about him that i don't think we have men- mentioned is so he was known as 
a hard science fiction writer. Uh, so he, uh, because he had such a, a scientific background and was known for doing very thorough research, uh, most of his books were quite fit based in science and our scientific understanding of the world. Um, so he was, I don't think we ever mentioned this, but he was uh, rejected from medical school twice and then became a chemist. So he was re rejected twice and then did his master's and then his PhD in chemistry and was a professor doing research. And then he eventually quit doing research and once his science fiction writing could could support himself. So I think that's kind of been uh, one lesson to learn from him too is like, uh, to continue to cultivate your craft alongside whatever other thing might pay the bills, quite frankly, because I think in his instance, it was very much. But he quotes himself the, saying bills, that but. he wants to be known as and remembered as a science fiction writer and not a chemist. So I thought that was fascinating. Man, right. I'm so disappointed about the butt pinching. You couldn't have just yeah. left that out till the end, Dre. Nah, I just <laughs> Maybe I should have. My no, bad. No, no, no. Nah, I didn't want to forget about it. You know, no. we got to yes. take the good with the bad. Still sure. a prolific writer. I, I I still have yet to read something from him. I'm less excited to now, but I still will. I still I think I should still should. There's, like you said, and there are always lessons to be learned uh, in the good and the bad. Yeah. I mean, yes, there is. We should probably be... If, if we take that logic, we should probably not be excited to read anything from anybody before the 1900s. Because yeah, yeah. they probably had some pretty bad views. Yeah. Oh, for and sure. did some, some not so great things. A very fascinating piece that he wrote um, was dedicated to predicting things in the year 2014. What he predicted was self-driving cars, nuclear power, like widespread use of it widespread use of simple robots to perform everyday tasks simple things inside the house and stores the zumba the zumba isn't, isn't the, Roomba. the Roomba. Roomba. video yeah. calls he predicted that there would be a population boom up to 6.5 billion it was 7.1 billion that year he predicted underwater housing not so close hovercraft transport that was a big one for <laughs> for all time 1900s people are always talking about the hovercraft we're still waiting on them very impractical and he also predicted a social a societal pathological boredom from robotic supplantation meaning since job robots doing so many of our jobs we know we don't know what to do with ourselves so we can we'll grow like depressed and like suffer from boredom Wow. Which did not happen in 2014, but that is an issue people talk about with the future of robotics. And yeah. I think I said wow. wild like six times, but like that's a lot of predictions of things that are quite true. I mean, were quite true. Even the hovercraft, I would say, while maybe not what he anticipated, uh, the types of the types of transport trains that use magnetics. Is it not true that they don't actually touch? I would imagine that's true, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I think that they repel and thereby hover. I'm also thinking about drone technology. I was going to say drone. And drone technology yeah. as yeah. well. Yeah, so, well, I, I mean, can't transport 
a human it's, because but it's like a smaller thing yeah know? but magnetic still still along the lines of, of what yeah. i was thinking yeah we definitely um, have hovercrafts we just don't use them because they're impractical yeah so i think that kind of intrigues me i'm like uh, he's so smart he didn't he would have seemed like somebody who would be like hovercrafts aren't really the future because they're not practical like to jet be jetson yeah like, maybe we just haven't figured them out yet yeah maybe but and, yeah yeah i mean he had some clearly great predictions yeah he also made a lot of them so that's kind of the funny thing about uh that writing. i've come across with creative writing and creative creative geniuses is that they'll produce a heck of a lot of of content they'll work like an accountant and then a few of them will hit <laughs> it's, whoa, whoa it's like like whoa that's why yeah. you have to shoot your shot it's just like the guy in the nba game who's like two for 18 but they hit the game when he's shot and like he's a hero he's a hero <laughs> he made the only shot that matters right <laughs> yeah it's i mean it's true to an extent uh like i think about i like i robot and the foundation series the foundation series specifically like before recording this cast, had you guys heard of any other others of his works? No. No. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he, the other ones were also popular at the time, but like, yeah, it's, it's yeah. pretty wild that those... I will say I, I've heard a lot about him, though, and I've seen his kind of stylistic That's true, artwork yeah. and stuff around a lot. So I think I just wasn't privy to him as an author, and I also haven't... I just got into sci-fi like, relatively recently. Yeah. Because I started writing it. Um, so growing up, I was like huge on fantasy and stuff. So I would have been way more knowing those type of writers. Sure. But, but yeah, but it's still sense. a good point. But yeah, I think, yeah, I just kind of wasn't looking for it. Sure. But maybe mm-hmm. like, next time I go to a bookstore, like I'll see. Yeah. Like, where is it? Because I, I can't yeah. think of it in my head. I don't remember just like bumping into it, but we'll see. Right. Next time yeah. I'm in the sci-fi There's a lot section. of books out there, so yeah. Yeah, five hundred. Yeah, hundreds of books. <laughs> like, you think you're bumping One into a band. couple. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, that's a really good point. Yeah, so I wrote 500 books, but we really only talking about two, you know? Okay. Yeah, well, wrote or edited or, 500 pieces, I think, because he did okay. do some short stories fair enough, also. Fair enough, so yes. just a Far more accurate. Yeah, a good, a good qualifier. I... I just also have to comment again when Aiden said you gotta look up the picture, you gotta look up the picture when you're in a safe space where you can be on your phone or your computer or whatever. But what are they called? Lamb chops or mm-hmm. something chops? Mutton chops. They're just hilarious. Looking. What do you think, Dre? Should we bring them back? If I could, I would. Definitely. <laughs> definitely. I'm into all that sort of like superstitious woo woo stuff with like embodying great writers because I want to be a a decent writer so i would definitely as them all of those things if i could <laughs> <laughs> oh man any yeah, other same, same wacky right facts or ideas things you guys thought were interesting oh Try i Aiden's. did see i'll go let's go ahead no i did see uh on the wikipedia page it said that it still needed a source but i did see that he was also exceptionally uncoordinated Hmm. Uh, which just made me smile and laugh because I live with Aiden and Aiden is exceptionally uncoordinated uh, and I would consider him a very smart person who could potentially be prolific in something. That was a compliment. Just smile, Aiden. Yeah, sometimes but, you gotta be... Oh, go ahead. Keep going. No, I mean, just that's it. That he, like, he, he wasn't perfect, obviously, mm-hmm. in his familial life and that he also seemed, I guess, to lack some bodily awareness it just made me laugh and smile. 
Yeah. When, so this is interesting. So I just thought a few things. So I was going to say, sometimes you just have to be lucky, right? So he was lucky that he was uncoordinated. So he didn't waste his time playing sports, it seems like, right? He spent his time reading and becoming one of the greatest writers of all time. And funny enough, since he was this uncoordinated guy, he actually was asked, like, like, how are you such a great writer? And he said, just the lucky break in genetic sweepstakes. So many of us who would consider someone who's uncoordinated, not so lucky, but he's like, nope, just the luckiest man ever in the genetic sweepstakes. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. So. I mean, one thing, so five foot nine as well, um, as a, as a male, you, you can't aspire to the NBA if you're five foot nine. Uh, was the NBA around at the time that he was live? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So. Or, I mean, just most professional sports or what yeah and and so i think it's it's funny too just like the the perfect circumstances because i also so i went to a talk uh i went to a talk by david brooks who's like a columnist he's a conservative columnist and he describes how he fell into writing and he's this five foot nine guy has to get up on a stool to look over the podium and and he said yeah I, like i was into politics but i was the small guy so i i couldn't be the the person up front and or like the person running for governor or whatever else because there's also biases there because we're human and people like tall people in leadership and so he ended up becoming a, a writer that was his how he fell into it uh was because he was this bookish character and also wasn't so good at sports but it's it's funny that you bring that up yeah Any, anything else fun facts things that uh, i try here's here's a quote by him writing to me is simply thinking through my fingers does that evoke anything in you guys for me it does for sure i think that when i sit down to write especially when i'm excited about something man i can just i can just crank out a lot of thoughts and like just keep on going and going and going and going and going until like my hands hurt too bad to continue mm -hmm. uh typing and i definitely experienced that the other week when i was excited about an idea and just cranking on words where i just would think it and it just kind of would flow um so yeah i identify with that quote um here's another fun fact about Asimov. So he, as Dre mentioned, he coined the term robotics in his 1941 story, Liar. In the same story, Asimov also coined the term positronic, the counterpart to electronic for positrons. Wow, and the positron was not discovered until later. And then Asimov coined the term psychohistory in his foundation stories to name a fictional branch, branch of science which contains or combines history, sociology, and mathematical statistics to make general predictions about the future behavior of very large groups of people, such as the Galactic Empire. Asimov later said he should have called it psychosociology. It was first introduced uh, in the five short stories, which would later be collected as the fix-up novel. Uh, foundation. Somewhat later, psychohistory was applied by others to the research of the effects of psychology on history. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it, it is kind of, it's that is to me is a testament 
uh, to the role of sci-fi writers in society in terms of, I mean, they just, they invent new words. They make us think about uh, considering our actions going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think definitely historically, a lot of writers, sci-fi writers, whoever, definitely have shifted the Overton window, have taught us new things to think about, which is really, really cool. Yeah. Are are there any quotes by Asimov that stick out to you, Jay? One quote, um, it isn't super profound, I don't think, but I think it definitely rings true for all three of us and harkens back to one of our old podcasts. He said, self-education is, I firmly believe, the only kind of education there is. Hmm. And of course, we know he was self-educated. We know he taught himself to read with street signs and stuff like that. So it makes perfect sense. But in our education podcast months ago, we also touched on that same idea. And I wouldn't go as far as to say perhaps only education. But unless you want to say it in the strictest sense, I suppose. But in general, yeah, we're definitely all three of us are huge on self-education, huge on being an intrinsic learner going out there and finding the answers for yourself and not just kind of passively sitting at a desk having someone lecture at you all day yeah yeah they they say that today there are a lot of like armchair voters or armchair decision makers Mm, yeah where you passively allow tv or some other external influence to uh, prompt you to make a decision and then without doing any additional hunting for answers or common science questioning you just decide to vote or eat pizza or to whatever it is, you know, kind yeah. of passively. I really like that quote. It it gives us, I think, like a, I mean, a encouragement to continue doing what we're doing and continue encouraging uh, thought and evoking thought amongst ourselves in conversation and hopefully in others. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, I mean, there's something there's something just different to driving your own education in terms of uh, your curiosity and then your subsequent capacity to create because yeah I mean if you are intrinsically motivated enough to learn it you're intrinsically motivated enough to go on and create Um, yeah so I think that that quote sticks out to me as well or just resonates with me as well I think to like unlocking the ability to self-learn and self-teach throughout life is a skill and once you can do it and once you can practice it and once you start it it's so exciting like I think life becomes more exciting because at least for me I have more nuance and more opportunity to ask questions and more opportunity to like investigate my surroundings and understand my life or the things happening around me. I don't know if you guys resonate with that as self-learners. Yeah, I think in, in better engaging with the world, I think to just again to plug back to deep work by uh, Cal Newport, he talks about how rapidly the world is changing and how important it is to be able to self-teach uh, new technologies or whatever else, new processes, because there are going to be new technologies that we're going to have to face in our lifetime. Uh, and he talks about the, uh, the importance of deliberate practice. And so, I mean, Asimov, clearly he, he went 
far above and beyond in terms of doing it from morning to night. But yeah, I, I have a quote that shows you how far and beyond he actually went. Asimov says, if my doctor told me I had only six minutes to live, I wouldn't brood. I type a little faster. Wow. wow. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't brood. I'd type a little faster. Wow. Dang, that's a wild quote. Isaac Asimov, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> there he is. I have one that has no context, and I'm just interested on in what you guys think about this one. He said, it is not only the living who are killed in war. It is not only the living who are killed in war. Well, I think of that, the idea that in war and in warring context, there are generally political agendas and ideas that are at war. And uh-huh. that in that, when there is a winner, also then emerges a school of thought generally. I think that held true in America in the war that uh, resulted in us being founded as a country and still holds true today in the idea of being resistive toward taxes and some of the other ideas that seem to be somewhat foundational in what American identity looks like today and arose out of an idea of, of not kind of wanting to pay taxes to the to British. Yeah. As well as the civ- the American Civil War right. too. I right. mean, slavery, slavery as an institution. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, there's still been issues since, but uh, yeah, the war of ideas. Uh, so I guess I think that's what. To take it. That's what I thought of. Did you guys think of something different? Uh, one thing I pondered that was really good. Um, one thing I pondered specifically because his emphasis on the word living, I thought about like the dead like how would the dead be dying again Mm -hmm. and then i thought perhaps maybe he's commenting on like endless wars and humanity how we keep just fighting it's like well we already fought to free the slaves we already fought to against tyranny we already fought like why are we still constantly tearing each other apart so all these people's lives who fought in previous wars were a lot of noble reasons right are kind of like dishonored yeah like they're dishonored it's like we're Mm -hmm. killing them again we're killing what they fought for yeah like all that type of stuff so i was like maybe i don't know no context so yeah (laughs) yeah yeah uh yeah i hear that yeah to be to be honest i didn't know what to make of it i was starting to think uh a little bit a little bit abstractly uh but not as, as worded as well as lauren i was thinking a bit about uh like relationships or uh yeah those kinds of things like feelings um and thought but i didn't i definitely didn't put it as as succinct or well as i think lauren put uh yeah do either of you have a quote or would you like me to read another i have one go ahead okay so this is a quote from asimov in 1990 I have had a good life, and I have accomplished all I wanted to do, and more than I had a right to expect I would, and more than I had a right to expect I would. Uh, I have 
been around a lot of elderly people in my lifetime and a lot of people toward I mean toward the end of their lives and I don't I know very few who have had this clarity and this uh peace I don't I don't know that I maybe that's not the right word but I just was curious if that resonated or if you had any thoughts if you guys had any thoughts about it yeah he seemed to be very at peace with dying through all the quotes all the things i read about him, even as a young person just knowing that it's inevitable no fear of the void no fear of anything like that um but that quote specifically i think on one hand it's obviously a piece that all of us would love to have like in our last days but also i think it also speaks to kind of that immigrant work ethic that he was instilled in him as a kid mm-hmm. that he really gave it his all like he 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 published as much as he could he wrote as much as he could and I don't I didn't read or hear anything that said like he had a lot of anxiety about releases and this and that it sounded like this is what he was born to do like this is what he felt his calling was this was his purpose and he lived to his to it to his fullest potential um yeah. living in that purpose and even like you said when he had obstacles like he needed to be to have a job in order to pay the bills that didn't change anything when he went to World War II that didn't change he published things in World War II uh, so he never sounds like made any excuses. He knew who he was. He was a writer, and he wrote. Yeah, uh, and yeah, I I'd like to uh, echo that, and again speak to to the deep work book because I also just read it this last week. But uh, he talks a lot about the importance of a flow state and how that contributes to to living a deep life because there is just this immense satisfaction that yeah, comes Cal from... Yeah, Cal Newport does. Yeah, Cal Newport does. Uh, how much satisfaction that comes from being completely absorbed with one's uh, work or whatever it is. Uh, yeah, uh, I think that that probably played a role in, in being so satisfied towards the end. Uh, because, what do you guys yeah, he suppose... Just gave it all, his all. Yeah, what do you guys suppose that very last he says, and more than I had a right to expect I would? What do you suppose that was about? Like, maybe the immigrant? Yeah, to me it just sounds like humble beginnings. Like, he's just reflect. he's just grateful that he got the opportunity. He's just like, hey, man, I can't, you know, parents did all they could, all that type of stuff. Yeah, especially too, because, I mean, you talk about how when he was a kid he dreamed of having a kiosk in the subway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, the fact that that was his dream and then he became one of the most prolific and renowned sci-fi writers uh of the time and and today as well i think do you have anything to add on that yeah no no i just i agree i guess yeah. that makes a lot of sense which is really cool to see someone who was that successful to just like have that i mean obviously the quote who knows how genuine was but it sounds like you just humble he's like hey man this was a gift yeah so that's really awesome. Hey, you got a quote for us? Uh, let me see here. You got one, Jay? I do. Part of the inhumanity of the computer is that once it is competently programmed and working smoothly, it is completely honest. Ooh, I disagree. After seeing Coded Bias, I disagree with that sentiment. Well... I would say that I agree with 
Dre because in terms of the or sorry, not with Dre, the the quote. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, I, I I agree with the quote in terms of the just the sentiment of computers being honest, honest because you program a computer and it's going to take things literally. And so the issue with encoded bias is is the. I mean, it's what the humans decided to input into the computers. Which is not honest. Um, but, yeah. yeah. He did I say mean, competently programmed. Oh, so. I guess that's I, that's a good qualifier. Competently yeah. Yeah. programmed. Yeah. yeah. I, Honestly programmed. If we can't. Yeah. Competently. That's a good yeah, word yeah. to slide in. Uh, one thing this makes me think about, it, going back to last week's podcast, the Humanist podcast, we talked about is humanity the, is humanist the goal is humanity the goal is humanity goodness in and of itself kind of the and he's saying that the inhumanity here in a computer is actually good it's better than human because it's honest and that's that was interesting to me yeah it reminds me of a little bit of the blog article that you wrote Dre the boy of strings or the boy on strings um yeah yeah the boy on strings and I think gets to that sentiment of like machine versus human or like perfect versus non-perfect and what is the goal thought-provoking quote yeah uh I think so here's one Violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Mm -hmm. So he's saying that those that result in violence are incompetent. Those that resort to violence, yeah, yeah are are incompetent. Yeah, I really like that quote. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I I can see where he's coming from in it for sure. Uh, I, I I really like that quote, but I do think it's 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 quite simplistic because I think of like mass, I mean mass violence, and a lot of it is quite organized, or some of it has been historically quite organized, which I think implies a level of intelligence, and it seemed like he implied that those who were violent or incompetent but maybe they're just incompetent of understanding empathy or incompetent of love or yeah. yeah yeah i think it could be incompetence at many different levels because i was thinking about some individuals yeah they resort to violence because that's all they all they know but um yeah i mean it could be incompetence i wonder if he wrote that later in his life because he fought in, or he didn't fight he was a chemist in world war ii but he yeah. lived through world war ii and Vietnam, Korea, etc. Yeah. So, interesting. One thing, too, that really rings true and what this reminds me of is there is a shocking correlation between um, children developing anti-personality disorder, which is, like, generally when you think of, like, serial killers and stuff like that, they have this, and the ability in being illiterate. So there's a high... A, too high of a correlation between anti-personality disorder and being illiterate. So when you talk about being incompetent or not having a certain skill set, and this also goes into this, what's the other condition that they, they, they don't give kids this definition you don't, or anti-personality disorder, you don't get that until you get older. There's uh, some sort of like aggression mm -hmm. um, disorder that they conduct 
misbehavior or something like that. They call it something like that for kids in psychology. So there's a correlation between that behavior and the inability to read. Uh, So that's just kind of like you can't communicate. You're incompetent in like one of the most simplest basic parts of interacting and living in society and being human. So you're easily enraged and then you're not because you don't understand that you're not understood. So now you're resorting to violence because of your incompetence. So I think psychology would agree with that. Yeah, that, that's a, a playback to the humanness episode too, oh, where sure. we were talking about uh, a bit about like how dogs, like maybe it's it's a lack of of communication when they might display their aggression. Uh, yeah, that could be better expounded upon. But <laughs> no, yeah, you're understanding. Yeah. So dogs, yeah. they don't have a very complex um, array of communication. So so many things. So they're incompetent in communicating. So so many things can be taken as like a threat or just misunderstood. So therefore, the safest way to act could be just aggression. It could just be violence. Like, I'm going to protect myself because I don't know what you up to. Yeah. 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 And Isaac Asimov, what a thought-provoking, prolific figure, especially as it relates to writing and chemistry. And pinching butts. And the unfortunate... Uh, sexual harassment that tended to occur (laughs) I don't know if you guys have any last thoughts before we wrap wrap it up on him but crazy prolific artist of of work of uh, American sci-fi or sci-fi in general I got nothing I think that's that's a wrap on my end Asimov I write for the same reason I breathe because if I didn't I would die Hey Common Scientists, hope you enjoyed the cast. Thanks for investing in Common Science. We hope it brought as much value to you as it did to us. To learn more, smash the subscribe button and visit our website, commonscientists.com, where you can read our blog, join our email newsletter, and follow us on social media. Finally, if you like what we have to say, you can absolutely support us on Patreon. We can always use more support. You can navigate there also from our website, commonscientists.com, common scientists with an S, so that we can continue cultivating a community of common scientists.